0: Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Trying to figure out how America got into its current condition is something that occupies most of my friends and family living there. Actually, everyone I know. Everywhere. Depending on how old you are, you can point to this event or that event as the turning point that sent America careering towards Donald Trump and a state of cold civil war. If you're my age, born in the numerical middle of the American century, then my thesis is The Events of October 1973 marked that turning point. I've been writing about it in a memoir and history. I'm publishing chapter by chapter at Substack. The URL is michaelgoldfarb.substack.com. What follows is Chapter 7, When Was the War? Ambivalence is a hard thing to deal with in history. People crave simple narratives, chains of causation that are obvious. August 1914, September 1939, December 1941, war is declared, all life changes, there's a before and after. Simple as that. But an aggregation of events that topples the old order without a clear indication that a new historical era has begun, that's more difficult for ordinary human beings to handle. America's children of victory grew up in a time of progressive politics. We have lived our adult lives in a reactionary age. When was the revolution? When was the war? In the absence of a singular date, I propose the events of October 1973. Here's an anecdote from nearly a decade later. It's a late summer evening in 1982, and the night train from Paris to Rome is about to pull out of the Gare de Lyon. I have just met a colleague on the train, a friend of my then-girlfriend. We've never met before, I have no idea what she looks like, but fate is at work and we have found each other almost instantly in the corridor of the carriage we have by chance thrown our bags in. As my girlfriend promised, we get on with each other instantly. As the train rumbles out of the station, conversation flows. The friend's name was Vicky, an Englishwoman who worked at the International Herald Tribune. We were born the same year and quickly found our way to the subject of the way our lives had turned out, and our surprise that we were regularly employed and living in a world where Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher ran our countries. This is something we would have thought inconceivable when we graduated from college a decade earlier. We had grown up in a time of limitless progressive ideas. Now we were enmeshed in an age of reaction. The paradigm had shifted, but when? How? Vicky must have posed the question. My answer was instantaneous. October 1973. She nodded and continued the thought. That's right. October 1973 is to our generation what August 1914 was to the Edwardians i hadn't thought of that comparison but she was right october 1973 is to our generation what august 1914 was to the edwardians it was the month when the world changed although like members of the british expeditionary force heading for france in autumn 1914 who thought they'd be home by christmas we didn't realize just how severe the shock was at the time It was not stop the world in its tracks severe, like the wars that shaped our parents' and grandparents' lives. The effects of this single month's events would take years to become clear. In that October, the Yom Kippur-Arab-Israel war led to Arab states using their massive oil holdings as an economic weapon. They put in place an embargo on oil sales, which led to prices quadrupling this led to a terrible inflation which destroyed the remnants of the post-war economy in both america and britain that inflation would not be brought under control until the near simultaneous elections of ronald reagan and margaret thatcher that same october would also see the resignation of vice-president spiro agnew as well as president richard m nixon's saturday night massacre the turning point of the watergate scandal the president would shortly follow his vice-president and resign in disgrace young republican party activists like newt gingrich would begin to reshape the g o p into an instrument of vengeance anecdotes are useful for understanding history at a personal level for historians chains of facts are of more importance in building a historical theory and it wasn't until the crash of two thousand and eight i discovered data to support my theory that october nineteen seventy three was indeed the turning point in a paper by estelle sommelier and mark price which was published by the economic policy institute in washington they wrote Examining the growth of income over the past century, we find growth was broadly shared from 1945 to 1973 and highly unequal from 1973 to 2007, with the latter pattern persisting in the recovery from the Great Recession since 2009. Following the crash, as the recession deepened across Anglo-America, economists and pundits noticed there was tremendous wealth inequality in America. Study after study was published demonstrating wage stagnation for most Americans began in 1973. Fact, between 1946 and 1973, household income surged 74%. Since 1973, it has gone up by only 10%. And it's not just income. Almost all economic studies of the post-war era, no matter what facet of the economy you are studying, use 1973 as the dividing line. Fact. American steel production peaked in 1973. Fact. Beginning in 1973, private sector union membership began to decline. 34% of the workforce belonged to a union in that year. In 2020, it was 6.3%. Here's a snapshot of America just before the events of October 1973. On September 15, 1973, 117,000 workers at the automobile manufacturer Chrysler went on strike. The issue wasn't pay, which is pretty good already. The issue was overtime and retirement. Despite economic noises off, removing the dollar from the gold standard, Americans were buying cars in record numbers. Chrysler plants were operating seven days a week, three shifts a day, to meet demand. The company's contract with United Auto Workers was due to expire, and negotiations had hit a roadblock. The workers wanted to be able to refuse overtime to meet current demand most chrysler employees were on a six day week nine hours a day but younger workers with no seniority to hide behind found themselves doing twelve hour days seven days a week Many of the newest people on the assembly line were veterans, recently returned from Vietnam. After a couple of years in the army, they wanted to get back to normal life. They wanted to date and get married and start a family. But working seven days a week, often doing double shifts, made that impossible. Workers also wanted to retire after 30 years on the job, with full pension and health benefits. The company's concern was that if someone started on the assembly line straight out of high school at the age of 18, that meant retirement at 48. The actuarial table said a 38-year-old who already had 20 years on the line would live to the age of 61. A 23-year-old recently returned Vietnam vet who started working the line in 1973 and who retired at 53 had a life expectancy of 65. Paying full pensions for a dozen years or more was something the company management did not want to do. Management didn't want full benefits to kick in until workers reached the age of 56. The company played hard ball. The workers went on strike for the first time in 23 years. After nine days, Chrysler's management caved in. The executives even agreed to set up some pilot programs to study ways to relieve the tedium of repetitive assembly line tasks. How many assumptions about the world are included in those numbers, and how different they are from the world of today? In September 1973, a person expected to work for a single employer for 30 years. An American automobile manufacturer would be selling so many cars, it needed to run three shifts a day, seven days a week. An assembly line worker's pay, relative to the cost of living, was good enough that he or she wouldn't need to work extra hours to make ends meet. Unions were strong enough to win disputes because everyone belonged to them. The union for just one auto manufacturer, Chrysler, had 117,000 members. In 1973, the total membership of the UAW was close to 1.5 million. Today, it's a little over 300,000, although more than double that number are still collecting pensions. The assumption about life expectancy numbers was wrong in 1973. The month before the world changed, there were hints that the ground was already shifting, if you were paying attention. On September 11, 1973, in Chile, the military, with a little help from the CIA, staged a coup against the democratically elected socialist government of Salvador Allende. There was hardly any reaction on campuses or in Washington. From the moment President Nixon commandeered primetime on all three American networks in the spring of 1970 to announce that U.S. troops were now fighting in Cambodia, until the moment when four students were killed at Kent State University, protesting the Cambodian invasion was less than a week. But when Allende was overthrown, very little protest. This was an indication of how things were changing. In that era of upheaval and hope, the death of Allende and the imposition of martial law in Chile should have sparked huge protests. Certainly in the US, it did not. Thinking about the event now, it's still a surprise, because Chile was a country the children of victory, at least the ones who were taken to the streets against the Vietnam War, knew well. We knew it because of my weekly reader. Who knows how stuff gets into people's heads. Why, some of it shapes attitudes when other stuff just gets flushed out of memory. For Americans of a certain age, my weekly reader was the first place we learned about the world. It was a news weekly aimed squarely at schoolchildren. In 1960, it had a circulation of over 4.2 million. My weekly reader told us about news in foreign lands and the things the American government was doing to help. Latin America featured heavily. It was the time for the Alliance for Progress, President Kennedy's signature policy in the region. With U.S. help, the continent would, in Kennedy's words, complete the revolution of the Americas. Living standards would rise. The curse of military coups and dictatorships would be banished by democracy. American-style democracy would increase prosperity and literacy. Chile, featured occasionally in my weekly reader... The country was held up as a beacon of democracy in a continent beset by dictatorship. Our 11 year old brains understood implicitly that Chileans were just like us. Chile was democratic and free. Its president, of Swiss German ancestry, was even named Frei, which looked and sounded like free, and in German actually means free. I was well into my university years and past being informed by my weekly reader when the ultimate proof of Chile's democracy was demonstrated. Salvador Allende, a socialist, an actual Marxist, was freely elected president. Then, on September 11, 1973, that democracy was snuffed out in a military coup led by General Augusto Pinochet with behind-the-scenes help from the Nixon administration. Allende, barricaded in his office in La Moneda, the presidential palace, shot himself. The roundups, torture, and summary executions began immediately. Americans and Britons were among the victims. And nothing happened. Nothing. The whole world is watching was a chant of the late 60s. The eyes of the world on a dictatorship can't prevent political evil, but it can ameliorate its effects. Yet in the weeks that followed, nothing was done to focus the world's attention on the Pinochet dictatorship maybe it was because the news only drifted north in fits and starts there was very little visual imagery and the newspaper reports were vague some people reported killed a thousand reported killed ninety reported killed no deaths reported well that one was really wrong maybe there was no reaction because latin america exists as an afterthought for most people in the north Maybe the reaction was weak because the Kent State shootings had affected the collective subconscious. The minority who still protested America's war in Southeast Asia, whose focus now was Cambodia, were genuine political radicals. The broader coalition against the conflict did not want to get too involved with radical politics, and possibly were not willing to get shot while peacefully protesting. Or maybe... There were just a lot of people in the same in-between place I was, confronted for the first time with the necessity of making a living and, in a wider sense, just growing up. That is where the personal and the historical intersect. Historians look at economic and political and military events as affecting history's flow, but they rarely look at unavoidable things like people growing up and maturing, the collective putting away of childish things by people of a certain age is also a potent force of history. Chile was free and democratic, just like the U.S., and its voters had chosen a socialist freely and democratically. As the years went by, it became clear that Allende's overthrow had been aided and abetted by the Nixon administration. This is a transcript of a phone call on September 16th, five days after the coup, a Sunday, between Henry Kissinger and President Nixon. Kissinger. Hello? President. Hi, Henry. Mr. President. Where are you, in New York? No, I'm in Washington. I'm working. I may go to the football game this afternoon if I get through. Good. Good. Well, it's the opener. It's better than television. Nothing new of any importance. Or is there? Nothing of very great consequence. The Chilean thing is getting consolidated, and of course the newspapers and bleeding hearts because a pro-communist government has been overthrown. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? I mean, instead of celebrating, in the Eisenhower period, we would be heroes. Well... We didn't, as you know, our hand doesn't show on this one, though. We didn't do it. I mean, we helped them. And here the transcript has a name redacted. Redacted. Created the conditions as great as possible. That's right. And this is the way it's going to be played. But listen, as far as people are concerned, let me say, they aren't going to buy this crap from the liberals on this one. Pinochet's dictatorship, maintained by brutal abuse of human rights, was supported by American presidents for decades in the name of America's civic religion, anti-socialism. Still, the fact that there were no mass rallies remains a puzzle, although by then the left in the U.S., which provided so much of the organizational energy for the anti-war movement, was doing what leftists have done for almost two centuries when the tide goes out. Fight amongst themselves. When I told my new friend on the train from Paris to Rome that October 1973 was when our world changed, included in that thought was the absence of reaction to Allende's overthrow in the weeks before. The coup could not have been undone, but perhaps more pressure could have been brought on the U.S. government to stop the massive abuse of people. People, as I had read in my weekly reader, who were just like us in a democracy just like ours. The failure to respond to Chile would embolden American presidents for decades to act with impunity in Latin America. Tens of thousands of people would be disappeared, tortured, and murdered throughout the region with the tacit connivance and outright support of the United States. At the time of that train journey, I was just a beginner in journalism— when i became more established i tried to make amends for my own inattention to chile and remind people about what had happened the last major news story i covered for npr was the arrest of augusto pinochet in london in october 1998 Pinochet, a close friend of Margaret Thatcher, was in London for back surgery. A Spanish judge, Balthazar Garzon, had issued an international arrest warrant for the now-retired dictator on 94 counts of torture and murder of Spanish citizens during his time in power. The British government was obligated to detain the former dictator the demonstrations that should have happened in nineteen seventy three took place outside parliament as the house of lords debated what to do with pinochet ultimately after representations on pinochet's behalf from thatcher and former u s president george h w bush he was allowed to return to chile among the people in the crowd i spoke to during the demonstration was a man named Luis Munoz, a Chilean trade union activist arrested and tortured in the early days after the coup. A few years later, I made an hour-long radio documentary on London's Medical Foundation for the Care of Victims of Torture. The first person treated there after the facility opened in the mid-1980s was the same Luis Munoz. In the days following the coup, his pregnant wife was murdered, and he was brutally tortured for months by the Pinochet regime. Munoz told me, you cannot believe the sounds you make. You cannot believe a human being can make these sounds. Although I was three decades late, it was still important to get his story to the world. Chile, a place I have never visited, remains a signpost in my life. One of my teachers at Antioch College was the Scottish poet Alistair Reed. He'd been an early translator of the Chilean Nobel laureate, the poet Pablo Neruda. Literature breeds solidarity among people, across borders and cultures, in the secret spaces of the mind. That's why dictators like to kill the poets and ban their books. Pablo Neruda died two weeks after the coup. It's still not clear whether he was murdered. It was one of the last major news events in the month before history entered the age of reaction. You can find everything about life in Neruda's work, but one poem in particular, Nothing But Death, opens with lines that prophesy his country's fate, and if an American reads the poem's first four lines closely today, he can hear a prophecy of his own nation's march towards calamity. There are cemeteries that are lonely, graves full of bones that do not make a sound, the heart moving through a tunnel, in it darkness, darkness, darkness. In America, the decades-long slow fade to darkness would begin two weeks after Neruda's death, in a war in the Middle East that began October 6th, when the combined armies of Egypt and Syria attacked Israel on Yom Kippur. By the end of the month, the price of oil had quadrupled, putting in place the great inflation whose social and political consequences we still live with. That's my thesis, and I'm sticking to it. Please visit michaelgoldfarb.substack.com. Let me try and convince you further. And keep listening to the FRDH podcast. Tell your friends and make a donation so that I can continue to do this work. Thanks.